But we're going to start again in Romans 13 as we take the scenic route. If you are following along at home, you might uh, remember that Romans 1 through 11 is basically about the principles in, uh, of, of salvation and what Christ has done for us. It's one of the most well-written, most eloquent uh, pieces of literature, whether or not you believe in God. I mean, Paul was a smart guy, and inspired by the Holy Spirit, I believe, he put together Romans 1 through 11, which talks about the problem of mankind and the, and the solution. And then in Romans 12, it moves into how we're to act as far as towards each other in the body of Christ. And obviously, we've talked about that for a, a long time now. So we're, uh, if you weren't here last week, we, we talked about what that means and the gifts that God has put in each of us and how we're to, we get to use those. But this week, he, he, uh, in Romans 13, he moves from not only how we're supposed to act towards each other as far as believers, but also how to act towards the government. And this is not one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Uh, I, I, I've struggled a little bit with it over the years. I, I do well with it, and I don't do well with it. But I really uh, feel like that the Lord... Uh, especially in the United States, but around the world, that there is some truth here that I think, uh, for me anyway, uh, is, is, was profound and uh, helpful for, uh, for how we act today and into the future. But he says in Romans 13, verse 1, that let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Verse 2, consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Uh, Lord, would you give us enlightenment here today to your word and what you have to say to us through these truths in the book of Romans. You said that you would be a light to our feet. As we're walking, it feels like sometimes in the darkness, it's because it is. We walk in a dark world, but your word is the light for us. And the final authority on how that we can live. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. I don't know if you noticed, but there was an election. <clears throat> And I read, uh, I read this chapter and, uh, you know, you cross-reference it with our uh, Twitter feeds. And, you know, sometimes I do better and sometimes I do worse on Romans 13. 
But I look at this and I believe that I believe that the gospel is true in any situation or it's not true at all. That every situation it has to be true in, no matter how difficult or complex, that the simplicity of the gospel can break through. And I think, okay, in the U.S., I can see God, how he could need this to happen. I mean, it's possible that what he needs is for American Christians to wake up. That we've been uh, asleep for a while, and that, uh, you know, we, we see uh, this, and maybe it exposes a little bit of our own idolatry. If, if I'm threatening to move to Canada, is God my God or is uh, democracy? The, the, the way that I thought that it should go out, I, I'm just, it's just a question. But this week was really interesting because I thought, okay, America, what about, I don't know, a place like Israel and their government and what's happening? What about a place like Gaza and their government? Is it still true in a situation like that that God's hand could still be in that and I really prayed about it because it was a, a little bit of a struggle. Think, I don't know, man, these guys are kind of mean. But as I, as I prayed and thought, and he began to take the lens back, you know, the old saying, you can't, sometimes you can't see the forest because of the trees, because you're so buried up close up. But if we take the lens back, remember, uh, what was the guy's name, Felipe, or whatever the dude just jumped out of space in a parachute? Uh, Felix, that was his name. Uh, his view of earth was a little different than my view of earth, right? Because he's like, however many, like 58,000 feet in the air. I mean, oh man, like miles in the air, okay? But God's view is not just about distance. It's outside of our time domain. Like, he doesn't need time. Time exists as a thing that he created. It's helpful, except for the moments like today when I didn't wake up with my alarm. But time is otherwise pretty helpful. But he sees outside of that even. And I think that when I look at the, the micro, okay, against the, the government of what's happening up against uh, right now on the ground in the Middle East, it's, uh, there's arguments to be made either way. In fact, they're, they're being made because they're being made on, uh, on Twitter. For the first time that I know of, and I'm, I think so, that an actual, a government actually declared war on Twitter. Do you know that? Like, I, the IDF spokesperson, International Defense uh, Federation, whatever it's called, forces of Israel, declared war on Twitter. We're, uh, we're coming and we're bringing hell with us or something. No, that was a Tombstone. It was, uh, it was something else. It was, uh, but we're but basically saying that we're, do, we're bringing this on, and then literally, like a few seconds later, they upload a video of the uh, leader of the Hamas military being blown up uh, on video. And then since then, literally, the Twitter feed has been full of uh, the IDF spokesperson uh, talking about what's happening, as also is happening on the other side with the Al-Aqsa Brigade, which is the official Twitter for Hamas, in case you're wondering. Uh, and so what I'm seeing in my Twitter feed is a war of words. Uh, Russ Rankin pointed out this week something I thought was hysterical, which is this is not the first time this has happened. It's just we didn't have it on Twitter before. It happened in uh, 1 Samuel 17 with David and Goliath. You know, he's shouting out to them, you guys are a bunch of pansies, you know, yo mama jokes, Philistine style. And then David goes back with you uncircumcised. You know, I mean, it's just literally a back and forth. 
of insults and of trash talking, war style. But today it's happening globally, literally this morning. There, there's an Al-Aqsa, there's pictures of their side, and then there's Israel's pictures of their side. And it just makes me wonder, is it possible that God could be at work even in this? And as I prayed about it, and thought about it, and went to the word about it, which is our light for our feet, I, I remembered you know, that Israel is, first of all, just tiny little dot of land in the middle of this large world. Any one of the nations around it could swallow Israel up. But Gaza, inside of Israel, is even a little smaller, little tiny piece of land. It is literally 25 miles across lengthwise and seven miles wide. It's called the Gaza Strip because it's just that. It's just a tiny little piece of land. And this land, this little piece within a piece, was originally promised in Joshua 15 to Judah. If you remember, Jesus was a lion of the tribe of Judah. But if you look into Joshua, you see something, and that was that this little strip of land right here, this Gaza Strip, even back then, the Judah never conquered it. They tried, and they couldn't. It talks about that they had uh, chariots of iron, that they couldn't defeat the Philistines because of that. And it's this coastal area, it's a flat part of the world. The Philistines, incidentally, were the seafaring people. You might hear sometimes uh, uh, the, uh, the remnants of Yasser Arafat claim that modern-day Palestinians are def uh, descendants of the Philistines. That's not accurate. The Philistines were European. They came by sea and took over that piece of land. So a modern-day uh, Palestinian is not a descendant of a Philistine. They're, the Philistines were not a Semitic people, meaning that they're not a descendant of Abraham, as would be the people of uh, the Arab people. So the Philistines are here, and in Joshua 15, they can't conquer them. And so Judah would end up setting shop over here, which is where Bethlehem is, which is where a lot of the Bible took place. But meanwhile, in this little neck of the woods, in the, uh, the uh, Philistine area would be towns that among them would be a town called Gath, of incidentally was the hometown of Goliath. The war for this piece of land has been going on for centuries. This would happen and go on for a while until there was a little guy, <laughs> a little guy named David that would come along. David and his kingdom would ultimately rout the Philistines off of this piece of land. This lasted for centuries under the uh, Solomonic. I'm not 100% sure if that's a word, but for the purposes of exhortation, entertainment, and today's discussion, Solomonic is what that kingdom was. That it would go along this way for a long time until... Ultimately, it would be 
conquered again by the Babylonians, the Assyrians, and then uh, ultimately by the Roman Empire. And it was from the Roman Empire, which extended a very wide swath of North Africa, Europe, and into the Middle East. This was the time into which Jesus was born. In the book of Acts, if you remember, Philip was told to go from Jerusalem where he would find a, uh, a eunuch and he would taught, preach the gospel who would ultimately go back to Ethiopia. That little guy, that eunuch, that whole story took place in Gaza, a city called Gaza. It was an important place because it was a trade route from Egypt that went all the way up into the trade routes that took into Europe. Very highly contested piece of land. This worked for a while as the Romans had conquered and ruled over Israel. They would ultimately burn down the temple in AD 70. I'm sorry, you could strike a match on my tongue right now, which we might if you're really well behaved, we'll try that. But I don't know what's going on. Um, they, they did this for until uh, 145 AD. Okay? And in 145 AD, there was an insurrection, a rebellion of the Jerusalem, of the Jews, of Israelis that would try to overthrow the Roman government. This was frowned upon in the Roman Empire. And at that point, Hadrian was, we're done with this. 1.5 million Jews were murdered in that. And the rest were carried off into captivity all over the world. As an insult, and if you've been around a while, you've heard me say this, but as an insult to the Jewish people, Hadrian wanted the name of Israel wiped off the map forever. He wanted this to be gone. And so he would change the name of Jerusalem to Elio Capitolana, which is basically the city, the capital of Hadrian. And he would change the name of Israel to Palestine, which is the Greek word for Philistia, the Philistines. It was an insult for Israel. It was a I'm going it was like if our country was invaded and now we would be called Chinanistan or Afghanistan Bananistan or some sort of an insulting name to our people at large and I'm changing and wiping out the face of the earth. That's what he did. And this was how the next few centuries would go. And it would go where the uh, it was during the rise of Islam and and, and you might remember some of uh, the stories, but as the Ottomans and the Turks. And, but they would, th this point, this land, this city, this place that God had promised to Judah in Joshua 15, a place that he promised to Abraham in Genesis 15, was now in the hands of Arabs and Persians, but specifically in the hands of Muslims. And this is how it went until the 1900s when World War I came on the scene. And the Ottomans and the Turks, they decided that they were going to side with the Germans during World War I. This didn't go well, if you're an Ottoman or a Turk. And after World War I in 1917, the British began to take control of this area, became part of the British Empire. It was around that time that a guy named Chaim Wiseman, sorry, I need to spit, um, was a chemist and a Jew developed a 
technique for acetone and it was part of what was used for their explosives in World War I that actually helped the Allies win World War I. And one of the questions that was asked of, of Heim and his friends was, what, what, do you, what could we reward you with? How could we benefit you? Could we give you a city? And his response was, I just want to go home. I want a, a, a nation for my people. And it was in 1922 that the British Empire, along with the League of Nations, would sign what is known as the Balfour Decu Declaration, agreed upon by all. It was a legal document, legally binding, giving, uh, declaring that Israel will have this land. And, and it went on for a, a while in that way, where that was the, the Jews began to relocate into Israel. World War II would come on the scene. Remember, that was the war, war to end all wars. And, and, and most of you, have, hopefully all of you know, that it was during this unfortunate time in our history that eight million Jewish brothers and sisters were murdered in, in ovens and firing squads. And, and the world changed. And it was in 1948, after the end of the war, that the British were beginning to disengage from many of the places around the world that they had been ruling, like Uganda and Kenya. It was during that time when they began to do that. And one of the places that they began to disengage from was, was Israel. And it was in 1948, May 14th of 1948, that they said uh, the British pulled out. Now, keeping in mind, they didn't treat Israel very well. They didn't keep the promises and give everything they said they were going to give to them. But it was May 14th, 1948. The Bible says, can a nation be born in a day? And the answer is yes. Because on that day that Israel became a nation again, and the Jewish people that had gathered from around the world and had been living in this area called Palestine were now in a home nation of their own. Uh, our government was the first to recognize them as a nation. And the very next day, war broke out. The surrounding nations attacked Israel. And in a, 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 you talk about how sometimes like college football on Saturdays, it's like upset Saturday. Whatever. This is the upset of the millennium as far as wars go. This brand new fledgling little nation that is literally just born out of nothing, defeated and won this war. Miracle after miracle, if you've never read about that time, there were so many miracles of God literally blinding their enemies and, uh, and they won and this nation was born. At that point, the borders were set Kind of how you see them today. You know, Gaza was not given to them. The West Bank was not given to them, which is right around here. And for 20 years, this nation was struggling with weapons all around them at any point knowing this is like a tinderbox. Everybody's got a hair trigger. And as these nations around, these Arab nations were beginning to get restless again, Jordan over to the East, incidentally, was actually given to the Palestinian people. If we talk about a Palestinian state. It, it, we have one. It started in 1948. It's called Jordan. They were given that land. Well, this didn't sit well with the leaders of the Arab nations. And so in 1967, it happened again, where all of the nations around began to attack 
uh, in a surprise attack. It was a blow to Israeli intelligence because they didn't know it was coming. But again, in six days this time, they fought off in an amazing upset again. They fought off and defeated these superior armies, these superior uh, amounts of people. And during this war, they did what a lot of nations do in a war situation. When the war is over, the winning party establishes the borders. And what they did during that time was take over the Sinai Peninsula as well and say, this is now our land also. Incidentally, during the war of 48, you might hear if you've got Palestinian friends or Arab friends, they might talk about, I think they call it the Nakba, which is the 570,000 Arabs which were forced out of their homes during the 1948 war. And they'll say, well, what do we do? What is fair for them? What they forget to mention is that they left their homes, obviously because there's a war, but because the Arab leaders from all these surrounding nations said, if you'll leave, get out of town. We're going to mow this place down, and then you can come back. You'll get your homes and whatever land you want after that. 570,000 of Arabs who ultimately would end up actually in Gaza for the most part, refugees. And there are pictures from that time of the tents and the horrific conditions that those uh, people lived in. What is forgotten about or not mentioned was at the same exact time there were 585,000 Jewish people living in nations around the area who were also forced out but not by Jerusalem or Israel but by their own government saying they're forcibly evicting them at gunpoint kicking them out of their countries. I bring this up because they ended up in Israel, in Jerusalem, where they were cared for and loved by the Jewish people, by the government, and absorbed into that population. The people who, were, who left, who were kicked out, however you want to verbalize it, from Israel during that time, the Arabs were not absorbed by the countries around them. Egypt did not help them. Jordan did not help them. And they left them to starve and to die in these, this little area, not helping their brothers and sisters something that continues to this day. This war happens in 1967. They establish these new borders over time. And some of you are old enough to remember, it was always about if you give us land, we'll have peace. Give us this land back, we'll have peace. So ultimately, they would give back this area to Egypt. Anwar Sadat, who would ultimately be assassinated, but they give it back to them and say, These are, we're going to give it to you and then we'll have peace. And of course, there was no peace. So in 1994, you guys might remember this. Remember uh, Bill Clinton, Joe Fulis always, and, and a guy named Yitzhak Rabin, who was the president or prime minister of Israel, and of course Yasser Arafat, who was a long-time known terrorist in Rabin, and he met for what was referred to as the Oslo Accord. And in the Oslo Accord, it was this idea that, look, uh, we need to work and play well together, this idea, we need peace, it's a, it's a legitimate idea, these two leaders coming together on this. And so the idea was that these guys would shake hands on this and that the borders would stay as they are, but they would give autonomy to the Palestinian people in the West Bank and in Gaza. And in giving them this autonomy, 
They allowed them to have their own government. Now, keeping in mind, it's like, you know, Spring Hill to Columbia. You know, I mean, it's like they're separate but together. They're, you know, there's a, there's a different police force there, but yet, you know, you're not checking borders at that point. They're going freely back and forth. And what this resulted in was not peace, but suicide bombings. And in the 90s, there were images of uh, nightclubs in Tel Aviv being blown up, of bombs going off and car bombs, and, uh, and peace was not brought to the Palestinian people. And they said, well, we want land. Give us our land back, and then we'll have peace. This carried on for a while, and you know, it seems like every U.S. president in recent history has stubbed their toe trying to help fix this problem, and W was not left to be undone in that situation. And if you remember, it was in around 2004 when a guy named Ariel Sharon was in charge. Uh, he was called the bear of Israel. He was a political, or I mean a, a military hero. He fought in the 67 war. There are images in newspapers from that time of him with head bandaged in a tank, you know, driving it into battle. He was a, a, a war hero of that era. And he was what was called a hawk, a war hawk. And they elected him because there was no peace. And so, you know, W comes in and our idea is we're going to spread democracy around the world. And so you got, you know, Condi shows up and we basically you say, let's figure out a way to throw them a bone, give them the olive branch. And so what Sharon did to the dismay of his own people, to this shock of those around the world was unilaterally, there was no discussion at the table of we could give you this and you'll get that. But he gives and says, look, we're going to pull out of Gaza all together. Everybody there that is of a Jewish descent, Israeli, we're pulling out. Meaning that if you lived in Colombia, you have to leave. They would give you some sort of compensation, kind of like an eminent domain thing, pulling them out. And so what we ended up with during that time were images on the news of those who refused to leave being drugged out of their homes in Gaza, forcibly, Imagine you've got your own military coming in, forcibly removing you, dragging you out of Gaza, and they left it into the hands of the Palestinian people, of the leadership that they had, which at that time was a guy uh, named Abbas, I believe was in power at that point. Arafat had passed away, and there was so much corruption inside of the PLO, inside of what was happening with Abbas and Arafat, that when the people were allowed to vote and an election happened, something fascinating happened. And that was that the people inside of Gaza elected a group called Hamas to be in power over them. That is like their political party. Like we've got the Democrats, the Republicans, the Ron Pollicans, the, you know, the, uh, they have these political parties and Hamas was one, Fatah was one. Now understand, this is germane because Hamas is elected into power. They've got power in this, their version of the Senate. So much power that their president, Mahmoud Abbas, can't even go to Gaza because they'll kill him. It was during that time that they were shooting people in the streets who they thought were traitors. It was during that time that a guy named Rami, who was part of the Christian Bible Association for the Arab people, was taken into the streets and stabbed hundreds of times and left dead with a pregnant wife and her children because he was a Christian. It was Hamas that was in power. Hamas that was so radical. 
that even the Egyptians didn't want anything to do with them. They were so radical. They were born out of the 1967 Muslim Brotherhood was a radical group. Hamas was so radical, they couldn't even be a part of the Islamic Brotherhood because they're that radical. And now they're in charge. Sharon pulls out. There's nobody there now. And what he successfully accomplished was the ability for the people of Hamas to begin to fire rockets indiscriminately into the land of Israel daily. Hundreds of them a year. And when I say rockets, understand, it's like bombs. You're, it's like Columbia is bombing Spring Hill, okay? Or vice versa. Every day. Now the good news is, is they weren't a very good aim. And so oftentimes they would just land out in the fields. But imagine the, t the fear that you live under knowing that any day your children could be at school and a bomb could fall on them. That was what they lived under because now Hamas had control of this area. So much so that, and imagine if you're Israel, imagine if you're any country, this was an image, there was a satellite image, but this is one of their launch sites taken from this week. Look, it's like, uh, it's what, 100 meters less than that from a playground. These are residential houses, this is factory, these are workers. They put it right in the middle because if you're Hamas and you're shooting your own people, they took somebody out in the streets yesterday who they thought was a traitor and shot him in the streets in front of everybody. These are the people that say, it does, it says they don't care if they're killing Israelis or if they're killing people on their side because they get to put those pictures on the news of where Israel has sent a bomb in and, uh, and killed these people around it with, I mean, if you're Israel, that's going to happen. Now hear me say this, it's horrifying, it's heartbreaking, and I'm not in any way, shape, or form endorsing the murder of children. I'm asking a question from Romans 13. If these governments are installed by God and they have the power that God has given them and these leadership are installed by there, how does that work? What does that mean for us, for them? Because you've got this government called Hamas that if you read you know, blogs or from, from literally people that have uh, you know, in Palestine right now, they're not that excited about Hamas either. They're between, literally between a rock and a hard place. The people, the Arab people who are dying right now, they are just as much a victim of Hamas as Israel is. And my question for myself this week was, what does God have to say about this? When I take my Felix view of the earth, when I try to look at it through God's eyes, was reminded this morning of a scripture that I think it's first Kings 19 where he talks about that before from a long time ago what's happening today is something I said was going to happen a long time ago that when I look at it through that lens I can see that in the book of Zephaniah see aren't you glad I warned you that it was a warning to the Jewish people of that time a warning for the future of the Jewish people. In Zephaniah chapter 2, he says, To gather yourselves together, O undesirable nation. Speaking of Israel. I believe some versions refer to it as shameless, but basically saying Israel, you know, not giving them a compliment on this one. This is not a high five, fist bump, Israel, you're doing awesome. 
He's saying, gather yourselves together. And it's a, in a weird way, it's like, shake it off. Like, gather yourself. Like, you know, the, the slap. Wake up out of this. Before the decree is issued, on, or the day passes like chaff, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger, whenever you see the word day of the Lord in Scripture, it is most often referring to the day of God's judgment coming on the earth. Jeremiah 30 refers to it as the time of Jacob's trouble. Daniel, this Daniel's 70th week. In Revelation, it's referred to as great tribulation, a time of tribulation coming on the earth, far worse than anything that's ever been seen, which says a lot because you've, behind us is the Holocaust. That was bad. It's saying what is coming is way worse than that. But he says to Israel, to seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth, who have upheld his justice and seek righteousness, seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. I think that that refers to Revelation 11 speaks of a remnant of Israel that will be hidden, that will be protected during that time on the earth that is coming. Maybe hidden, but wake up before it's too late, he's saying to Israel. But listen to what he says in verse 4. He says, for Gaza shall be forsaken. And I've thought about that, and I think this is a nation that was forsaken a few years back when Sharon pulled all of the Israeli people out of there, pulling back, saying, we're done, we're giving the land back to you, Joel 2, Zechariah 8. There are three other passages that talk about don't divide the land. This is not something God was wanting to have happen. He would divide the land and say, you can have that land back, and they didn't get peace. All they got was a better, uh, a better shot at them. But Gaza shall be forsaken. And interestingly enough, because not only are they forsaken by the Israeli people by pulling out, but they were forsaken by all those around them. There's a lot of talk about the wall that was built around Gaza from Israel, so they could not get back and forth into Israel, the blockade. What people don't talk a lot about is Egypt blocked them off too. There's a wall, the entire width of their, it's 100 feet deep into the ground so they can't tunnel under it. Razor wire on top, a wall between Gaza and Egypt because they don't want that either. Hamas is crazy. So they've blocked them off. Gaza has been forsaken. And I look at that and think, maybe he's suggesting that this is a little bit of a trigger, a precursor, a sign. Jesus said we wouldn't know the day or the hour but we would know the seasons. It's fall. You know how I know that? Because I spent eight hours yesterday raking my yard. The seasons have changed. It's cooler out. I would know the seasons as they change. Gaza being forsaken appears to be a trigger, a sign that is an imminent sign before the return of Christ. And I would encourage you this morning to go Berean on me, okay? Acts 17. Don't, for God's sake, do not believe this because I'm saying it. Go to the scriptures and see. See if it weighs out. But he says that Gaza would be forsaken. He speaks of a time that's to come. And he would say to the Israeli people, to the Jewish people, you shameless nation, wake up. Because a time is coming that is actually talked about in Zechariah. Thirteen of verse eight says, "It'll pass in all the land," says the Lord, "that two thirds shall be cut off and die, but one third shall be left in it. I will bring 
the one-third through the fire. I'll refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people, and each one will say, this is my Lord. Interesting, by the way, I believe this to be a prophecy as well of that day, because look what he says in verse 6, and one will say to him, where did you get these wounds in your arms, between your arms? And then the answer, you'll say, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends, speaking of the Jewish brothers and sisters who rejected him and who killed him. In the house of my friends is where I received these wounds. Is a prophecy speaking of the future. Here's what I was fascinated by this week, and I want you to know that this, this is not a thus saith the Lord, this is just a, I found it fascinating. At a time when Gaza would be forsaken, in a time coming upon the earth where the Jewish people would be uh, a time of judgment, a time of Jacob's trouble, uh, the time of, it talks about God's wrath being poured out on the earth for the Christ-rejecting sinful world. But he said that, look at this, that two-thirds shall be cut off and die, and shall be left, one-third will be left in it. Interesting, because when, when Sharon made the move, pulling out. He had to get his security council to vote on it. There are 21 votes in the security council. 14 voted yes. Pull out, get out of that land. Seven voted no. One third said, no, 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 do not let this land go back. This is not what we, this is not gonna work. This is not God's best. Seven said no, one third. The Knesset, which is their version of the Senate, 120 votes, 80 people said yes, pull out, get out of the land. 40 said no, one third. There was a poll done at that time by the Jerusalem Post, polling the Israeli people. Who wants to get out and who doesn't, who supports, who doesn't? Any guesses? 66%, I kid you not, said no. I mean, said, yes, get out, we'll pull out of the land, and 33% said, no, do not do this. It's not going to work. One-third and two-thirds. Does that mean anything? I don't know. find it fascinating. I find it fascinating that God's numbers are always so succinct and throughout. There's a preciseness to the scriptures that we forget about, that we kind of, we love the big picture, but God was so far ahead of time. Does that mean these are the people? I, I don't know what it means, other than those numbers are pretty consistent in history, and that there is a time coming on our earth that could be today. You know, I hate it because I grew up in a world where the, the could be today. I got saved, I don't know, like 18 times, like the Billy Graham movie. I didn't want to get my head cut off, the guillotine. Remember all that? When you're, maybe you don't remember that. But I say that uh, hesitantly because I don't want to scare anybody. That's not the goal. Because Paul said, don't scare one another with these words. First Thessalonians 4, he said, comfort one another with these words. I want to bring you comfort today to say that this government that I don't understand here, the government I don't understand there, God is in control. And he is moving things into place in a way that he needs, in a way that he spoke of long before you or I were even realized our parents were around. This has been a thing set in motion for millenniums, millennia. And I say that because when you look on the news, there's, and many of you probably do this, you, you, you don't even want to know. I don't, I just, I don't want to know. I, don't, I just put my head in the sand. I don't want to know. And then there are those that are like, like my mom, bless her heart, you know, she's in heaven now, but every time something happened, is it now? Is this happening? Is, is Jesus going to come back tonight? I, I. Jesus spoke of, a, of an imminence to his return, meaning that 
Nothing has to happen before the, he could come back at any second. Tonight could be. Could, could this be the Gaza? Is it this thing he's been forsaken? And it, it could be. The truth is, is we don't know, but it could be even without this. But when I look to the world around me, and I think, this place is, this is trouble. There is trouble in the world. Yes. And guess what? Jesus said, there will be trouble. He promised it. Again, I can take comfort in that. And so my comfort is that, okay, it doesn't mean that I'm not going to go through persecution. It doesn't mean that. I mean, that literally the vast majority of Christians throughout the times since Jesus have lived under persecution and threat of their lives, how dare I think that I am immune from that or that somehow I don't have to. We, don't, we haven't so far, but it's not a promise that he's made us. Instead, I can say, oh, but he's, he's got this one under control. And my question is this, and I'm going to land on this. What, what does that mean? He could come back at any moment. He could come back tonight. He could come back at any second as a comfort to us. And I think that Paul deals with it so beautifully here back in Romans 13. He says to obey the government. Basically, don't get your underwear all bunched up over what's happening in the government because they're going to pass away anyway. When I suggest that sometimes government can be our idols is because when I am more concerned about my government than about God's kingdom on earth, I've switched over my allegiances. But here's what he says we get to do. Knowing that at any moment he could return, he says, to let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves has fulfilled the law, the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, don't steal. He says in verse 10, love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore it is the fulfillment of the law. He tells us that what we get to do is love. We get to be a part of the mission that he has on this earth. If time is short, ratchet it up. We get to love our brothers and sisters in front of us, around us, around the world. We get to love them. So I have loved you, you love one another, love your neighbor as yourself. The best possible weapon of our warfare is not carnal, but mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. What could be so mighty as loving your neighbor as yourself? And that doesn't mean you have to go to Haiti. It means you could. You could go next door on mission to love your city, your family. And the second thing is, not dissimilar, not only how to love, but how to live. It says, and do this, understanding the present time, the hour. Look what he's saying. It's already come for you to wake up. Time is short. Wake up. Because salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. Let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Incidentally, what did Jesus say in Matthew 5? He talked about to let your light shine before men that they might see what? Your good works and glorify God. Not glorify me, but glorify God. We don't glorify Ben. He got home today. We won't glorify Fadley's. We won't glorify the bashers. We won't glorify you. If your works are bringing glory to you, you're, you're doing something wrong. Point it back to Jesus. 
for our brothers and sisters in the Middle East right now who are suffering? What better weapon of our warfare than to love them? To physically bring them uh, the good works and the food and the help and the shelter that they need. But incidentally, he then goes on to say that let not sexual immorality, debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy, rather clothe yourselves with Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. We get to love and we get to live in a way that is different. I wanted to bring comfort to us today because Romans 13 says that those governments are put there by God. And I can't understand that up against looking at it right against the wall, but when I take back the lens and say, let's be honest, there are things I don't understand even in that context. On the ground, I don't get it. But you know what? There are things that my kids, especially when they were younger, they didn't understand. Why do I get to have candy on this time, but not that time? Why do I get to do this or that? And I could explain it with as much logic until I'm blue in the face. And they aren't going to get it because their brains aren't wired to understand it yet. God's not holding out on us because he's some sort of Lord and over us. It's just we don't understand it. We genuinely, our brains are not wired yet. That's what he says someday that I will fully know as I am fully known. I'm going to get it someday. And at that point I'm going to say, it says, we'll be around the throne saying, righteous and true are your judgments, O God. All that is is us saying, wow, are you kidding me? That was awesome. That all makes sense. And we'll get to do that for eternity. Everything will make sense. It won't be like we're an automaton robot. We'll be genuinely blown away. Because this thing in Gaza will be like, oh, that's it. That was awesome. And until then, faith is what carries me through. And my job isn't to try to figure it out, to lob hateful and hurtful comments. My job is to love well and to live differently. And I would say to you this morning as we're going to worship for just a little bit longer that maybe some of us this morning, uh, it's time for us to wake up. That it's time, just like Israel, just like Jerusalem, for them to wake up, that their, their salvation is drawing near. The time of Jacob's trouble, this time of a, that's coming to our earth, that God loves us enough to say, I've warned you ahead of time that it's going to happen. That's how much he loves us. It's not going to be a surprise. Paul actually says that in 1 Thessalonians, saying that uh, some it's going to be like a thief in the night, but not for you who are children of the day. You're going to know when it's coming. You're not going to know the day or the hour and all those guys that do. I mean, incidentally, there was a book written in 1988. Remember this, 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 88? You can get that really cheap on Amazon right now. Uh, <laughs> It isn't about that. If, if, if my job is, incidentally, it's not to try to figure out the time of the day. My job is to love and to live, to live differently. And might I encourage us today that we get an amazing opportunity to be a part of a special operation team for the battle for the souls of the world in the days that the disciples only dreamed of. At a time that if you're scared, you should ask yourself why. Because maybe... You don't really understand that Jesus has got this under control. He said, fear not how many times in the scriptures over and over again. We don't have to be afraid. We get to live and we get to love. It's the easiest gig. It's above my pay grade to figure out how the government of Israel should deal with the government of Hamas. It's, I don't know. What do you do when someone is sending rockets over into your backyard every day? I don't know. I don't have to know. I get to live and I get to love. It's about 
the gospel transforming lives. And today, might I encourage you that if you're in a position where you're not in there, that moment of like, I really need to, and I hate to say this word, getting my, <laughs> the, uh, if you grew up, the uh, getting your heart right with God thing, your heart's fine. He, may, he gave you a new one. Sometimes though, we just need like a good chiropractic adjustment that ah, pop, it hurts for a second, but boy, it feels awesome. Maybe you need a good chiropractic adjustment in your spiritual life today. And Russ and Angie are available at the prayer triangle <laughs> to pray with you for that. Maybe you want to just know that your life is in the hands and secure. My hands are secure. My life, my salvation is secure because it's in the hands of a guy who has holes in them who said I paid for it. So I'm secure in that. But if you don't believe that, you don't know that, maybe you would want to pray. And again, the, Russ and Angie are there to pray with you. Or maybe right where you're sitting, there are some things in that list that Paul gave in Romans 13. You, ah, I need to take this off. I need to kill that part of me. There's a picture even in Israel, which is that little tiny strip of land, that little Gaza. Israel said, you could have that, and look what it did. It gave nothing but trouble to them. Some little heart of your soul, some little Gaza, I don't mean to be trite or flippant, but some little Gaza in your soul that you've been holding on and just letting go. Maybe it's time to just give that over to Jesus as well and give it all to him. And knowing that this is an exciting time to be alive. All around us, the harvest is ready the gifts that God has put in you that are growing, ready to go for others to join alongside of it. You didn't get your way in the election or you did, who cares? Jesus is king that Obama, Bush, Carter, Clinton, they're all gonna bow their knees to him. And he says that he's got it and the work that they're doing in that government is ultimately for your, my good and his glory. Lord, would you move in our hearts and speak to us and Show us the areas, the places where we have allowed to exist that we need to give back to you. And Lord, awaken in us, wake up, awaken in us the opportunities that are all around us for us and for our children. That your return that is imminent, that we would be found working on your behalf, a soldier in the army that you have with the armor of light on Thank you for loving us enough to tell us centuries ago, millennia ago, that you love us enough. You said, hey, this is going to happen this way. Just FYI, don't be freaked out. Thank you for that. You might bring peace to us. And Lord, that just as your scriptures command, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And as John prayed in Revelation, even so, come quickly. In Jesus' name, amen.